Good morning and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one chapter at a time, and we're reading together even on auspicious days like October 31st. And of course, we know this in the church as Reformation Day, so happy Reformation Day to all you listening. But of course, also we know this as Halloween, and um, I'm just I can't resist having a little bit of fun with this. We have something kind of spooky going on today. Is it a trick? Is it a treat? Here on October 31st, we have Isaiah 31, the 31st chapter. Coincidence? I think not. And am I seeing double? But we have Espinosa and Espinosa. Our guest today is the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California, also known as the father of yours truly. Welcome back, Dad. What a great opportunity here we have, right? Absolutely, son. Thanks for having me. And this is indeed an auspicious day, Reformation Day, and All Hallows' Eve as well. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose it would be right and salutary to acknowledge that Reformation Day and uh, All Hallows' Eve, these are the uh, primary things of significance on a day like this. But, you know, having some fun with family and with community, and uh, I just think about how much Ellie loves trick-or-treating, how it's just, you know, she gets excited to see, you know, neighbors coming out and spending time together and being generous with each other. I mean, that's a good thing, too. She has a blast. She can't wait to get out there and get that candy and make friends. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, she's on a mission. She's on a mission, and she's just uh, very sociable. So looking looking forward to all of these, all these good things. But yeah, you know, Isaiah 31, it's, it's an interesting little chapter. Well, I mean, it is a little chapter. It's only nine verses. It, in many ways, is, um, I mean, kind of just continuing what we already had going on in chapter 30 and some of the stuff beforehand kind of continuing on with these, these woes and um, you know, just this judgment against Judah for trying to trust in Egypt. So not necessarily anything new, just kind of this little bit tagged on, but it offers a very particular perspective on it and a particularly spiritual perspective on a historical event. Indeed. Um, and um, it talks about being applicable to our day and age. And um, would it be okay if I offer a prayer? Yes, absolutely. Like, let's pray and just pray for everybody listening and for us as well as we uh, go into this and that we'd be guided by the Spirit of God to discern spiritual things. Amen. <clears throat> and on this Reformation Day, we pray. Almighty and gracious Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us steadfast in your grace and truth. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Defend us against all enemies. And grant to your church your saving peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, so since we do have a shorter chapter here, 
you know, we can kind of take our time going through this. So maybe even just a verse at a time will do. Let's go ahead and look at this first verse and just kind of, this will give us a chance to kind of link this to the previous chapters that we've been looking at. So here's Isaiah 31, first verse. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are, they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So, I mean, here we are just laying out the complaint that we've seen for a few chapters now, trusting in princes, trusting in particularly this alliance with Egypt to get them out of the Assyrian disaster, um, instead of looking looking to God, this is and this is interesting because I mean, isn't this just a this is a fascinating turn of phrase here? Those who go down to Egypt, going down to Egypt, never a good thing in the Old Testament, is it? No, not at all. It, it's um, it, it is a um, it's an indication of. I think earlier you had connected that which is more visible to the invisible, tangible to intangible. And, and here you have yet another example of that. Um, that this is a, um, a a degradating spiritual condition that is epitomized and, and literally going south at the same right. time to a, a false comfort and, and a false uh, protector in Egypt, uh, which is uh, quite proud of its non Yahweh um, ways, um, and so uh, as as the old saying goes, um, uh, while well, God uh, took the Israelites out of Egypt, He He couldn't take Egypt out of the Israelites, and and, and they kept coming back to this um, degrading spiritual condition that right. that is epitomized by going back south again. Right, that that is a turn of phrase that is an apt summary here. It's it's fascinating, as we saw in Numbers, um, and, and similarly, of course, in Exodus, that the people kept wanting to go back down to Egypt, even though God's leading them to the promised land and, and getting them out of there, leading them up out of there, right? And um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, if we think of, uh, it, you, me you mentioned this, I think we think of it as they're going south to Egypt, but I think for them, they're, they're literally thinking about going downhill because by the time you get to Egypt, you're you're very much at sea level with the Nile and the Nile River Delta and all of that. But, you know, they, they want to keep going back. And, and they keep saying, like, oh, how good and nice we had it, right? You know, we had fish and we had vegetables, right? Um, and, and there's this, you know, let's just go back. And at least when we were slaves, we, we ate well, um, which just showed the terrible spiritual state of affairs of the people. And, and that, that, that preference to put the material things ahead of spiritual concerns, I mean, that, that's just, it's not only the same political power, but it's the same parallel spiritual situation. And indeed, and, and so spiritually, we, we hold on to um, that, that which will perish and turn to dust in, in accord with our, our old Adam, our old man. And of course, this is a a uh, frustrating and, and terrible redundancy we see throughout the Old Testament. Um, 
the people of Israel were all already complaining against Moses in, in the wilderness and, and dreaming of the good old days um, back in Egypt. Um, but I, I think overall we see this this basic pattern of, of what we see tangibly before us in, in terms of military might, uh, physical resources right. that are readily apparent, uh, governmental powers. These appeal to us, and, and we have the the awful tendency of, of wanting to go back to that. And so we see this replaying over and over again, uh, especially in respect to, I, I think, some key junctures that lead us up to this point where, where we see this tendency really infiltrate the hearts of the people of Israel. And besides the one I've already mentioned from the Pentateuch, um, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, um, we, we go back to a very, very significant event when Israel demands a king. Mm-hmm. And, and God says right out at 1 Samuel 8, 7, God says, they have rejected me. They're looking around at the other nations want to be like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, an, another uh, important highlight going further in, in, down the history uh, towards this event here in Isaiah, 1 Kings 3, 1, uh, this is when um, Solomon, the great Solomon, uh, makes a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right. And, uh, and and mind you that he does this before he asks for wisdom. But the the damage had already been done. Mm. And um, and then the last example leading up to the situation in Isaiah, you can just see that, again the infiltration of of of, of the idolatry that's represented the power of man. First Kings eleven forty eight Solomon is literally worshiping the idols um, from the other nations. So it's gone that far. So by the time we get here to Isaiah 31, which is just a, a, a shorter uh, form of chapter 30's structure and content, it is emphasizing this basic, repeated, awful tendency within man, according to the sinful nature, to trust in the political powers instead of trusting in God. Right. Yeah, right. It, it's something that you see again and again, and all those situations, what they have in common is they say, well, okay, there's, yeah, it's a, it's a pagan nation, and we're going to be worshiping their gods, and we're going to, you know, it's going to infiltrate our religion here, and that's not what God says, and that's not what the prophet says, but I mean, come on, you know, I mean, how bad could it be? You know, it's just, it's just for a little while. It's just, you know, so we can weather the storm. It's just, you don't be impractical. Don't be idealistic, right? We just, it's so easy for us to slip into the exact same mentality when, when, whenever we just put expediency or practicality, right? Just being practical, just being pragmatic, how often that leads us to make all kinds of spiritual compromises. And even though it seems good at the time, and it seems like, oh, okay, but no, look, we're being we're being successful, and we're having you know good best practices like everybody else, right? Um, the reality is, like Joseph, we're being sold into slavery as we go down to Egypt. It's literally the opposite of redemption. Redemption being when God buys us out of slavery, instead being sold into it, and we're the ones like the sons of Israel. Um, selling their brother, we are really selling ourselves into slavery. Yeah, and and your elaboration, I, I think, is is a great um, starting point for for application. Uh, we we still sell ourselves into slavery. Whenever um, to this day, uh, as Christians, 
uh, as those who are in in Christ uh, confuse the the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the right, the the kingdom of God's grace and church, um, confused with the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of power and and, and government. I think Isaiah is very, very good for us. It's very good for our souls to this day in the 21st century in, in America. Uh, yes, there's much good that uh, good Christians should do and can do in uh, supporting good morality in uh, really caring about what happens in our school systems and in and, right. and, and being conscientious about religious liberty and mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 the de- defending the unborn. But it's easy as we do that to be tempted to put too much stock in the political machine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's easy to uh, lose our identity as those who worship the only one who will bring any lasting change and effective change of worshiping him through word and sacrament and turning our backs on that and becoming overly pragmatic. Right. Um, and just That's rest right. in the political system. Right. Well, yeah, and you, you, you see that kind of language and hear that kind of language all the time when you say like, oh, you guys, you guys are just afraid to get your hands dirty. And if we're going to win an election, if we're actually going to save lives and we need to be prepared to do X, Y and Z. And, um, you know, it's all the justification that very easily leads up to making those sorts of compromises. And the, the irony, you know, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the two kingdoms here. The irony is that when you appreciate this rightly, as it's articulated by Luther, you know, our reformer who we're focusing on a little bit this week, as he articulated this, the irony is that when you have a robust understanding of the two kingdoms, left and right hand of God, it it seems like you're making compromises to an outsider. To an outsider, it can very easily seem like you're the one who's compromising. I, I just think of, you know, I, I, we, I keep going back to Daniel in my head, right? Daniel, who's you know, like the the chief like magician and sorcerer of Babylon, right? And <laughs> you know, it's like there there he is, and and I just can't help but feel like you know somebody's looking at him like Daniel, look at you, you've compromised, you've sold out, right? You know how how could you possibly you know have that job and you've accepted that title, right? Um, but the thing is, ironically, because he has a robust understanding of the distinctions of the left and the right hand. He's not making a compromise because he's operating firmly and conscientiously in the left hand, which allows then to him to serve according to the right hand without making those compromises. Amen. And and I think uh, uh, one way of describing the the robust uh, proper understanding is that the Christian is um, always twenty four seven in both kingdoms. It, it's not as if we, we go to church on Sunday mornings and uh, participate in the Mass and strictly have our right-hand kingdom hats on while, while we have left our left-hand kingdom hats in the closet back home. And nor is it that we go into our work week and, and we put our right-hand kingdom hat in the closet and just wear the left-hand right. kingdom hat. Right. It's robust because as we are living in holy vocations in the left-hand kingdom, we are always royal priest. We are always disciple. We are always Christian. And it's precisely that light and salt that comes from that right-hand kingdom reality that we are used by God to be blessings to the left-hand kingdom. So there's a light seepage 
that permeates the left-hand kingdom. Um, so, yeah, indeed, to, to have this proper understanding, and I couldn't agree with you more, I, I think uh, many in um, America who identify with the Christian faith view Christians who maintain this distinction to say, you're just giving yourself a reason not to do more in the left-hand kingdom. Right. But but the confusion is precisely what we're talking about. And, and the doing more is not about investing more trust in the political machinery. The doing more is being more bold and living our faith in the political structure. Right, um, yeah, which ironically and, and, and this, can... Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say, I, 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 I know you and I both appreciate our good Reformed brother, Timothy Keller, when he yeah. warns against money, power, success, and love as, as the gods of this age, I think it's important for us to make the connection that power is not just individual seeking of power, but sometimes it's when uh, Christians, with all good intention, get right. caught up in governmental power. <laughs> and, and, right. and now we can control the day, and, and this, is, this is deception. Right. Yeah. No. Or, or like a group of, um, you know, Judeans thinking that they can seize power collectively on the world scale, right, on the world stage. I mean, that's what's going on here, and it's so ironic because it shows the just the illusory um, betrayal of it all, right? How you know, first, what happens? You know, they're they're scared of the north. Uh, they're scared of the Israelites up in Samaria in the north, and they're scared. Um, of Damascus, of Syria, off to the east. And so they say, okay, well, we'll appeal to Assyria. Assyria, they'll take care of us. They're strong, right? They'll get us out of this. And of course, Assyria gets too close for comfort. And then so now what do we do? Like, oh, rats, uh, appeal to Egypt, you know? And so now Egypt is sending up chariots and horsemen. Um, and they're actually up there. Like, I mean, in Canaan, they invited them um, to go and help uh, fight against the Assyrians, right? And it just goes to show you, like, you know, here you are and you think you're going to, you know, seize power and like, oh, well, we'll, we'll really establish, um, you know, I, I can only imagine, right, like the, the religious sounding sales pitch that could have been made for this, right? Oh, we will firmly establish the land that was promised to us by Yahweh, promised to our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we'll firmly establish uh, the throne of David, um, and, and you know, prevent uh, the, the northerners and those in the east from corrupting us, right? I mean, they, they could have given all kinds of religious-sounding excuses for this. But th the problem is, once you start collectively making this grand compromise to try to um, you know, seize power, you, you are just going wherever the wind blows. One day you're under the thumb of Assyria, the next day you're slaves again for Egypt, and it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, and, and Isaiah also, he, he captures the uh, appeal of the day uh, for this confusion in, in verse 1. Uh, notice he mentioned specifically uh, horses and chariots. Um, we, we know from history that uh, as of the Bronze Age, uh, warfare was um, most notably um, enhanced by, by horses and chariots. Uh, the, the, this is the, 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 the newest and cutting-edge expression of physical and militaristic might. And, and, and so it's, you know, to translate for us today, uh, we're, we're going to be really interested in how we can protect, uh, if, especially if you're a pre-tribulational, premillennial dispensationalist, protect Israel and Jerusalem with, with, with missiles and cybersecurity. Um, and and that that tendency is alive and well in the United States. 
uh, we trust right. in the things that we invent. And um, that's idolatry. And it, it, it still happens. Right, right, right. Of course, you know, we, we never lose sight of the fact that God works through means, but it's when we, it's when we stop, when we stop trusting in God and we, we put aside the God ordained means for the means that we have chosen for ourselves. And, you know, and, and in this case, you know, Isaiah even, you know, strictly charged Hezekiah, like, don't, don't go down to Egypt. Don't make that deal. Right. And, and this is, this is an important point because you, you see that Hezekiah was, um, you know, not perfect here. Um, I mean, and this is, this is his big mistake that, I mean, and this is, a, in, in many ways, this is, this is all part parcel of the peace that you get because I, Hezekiah truly has to repent along with the rest of the nation. Um, I mean, so he, he has fallen and he's later going to get sick. Um, and so this is all going to kind of just, um, you know, personify the status of the nation as a whole. And, and Hezekiah needs to repent if there's going to be true peace. He has to have faith or else there will be no firmness at all in the nation. Um, I, this is really, you know, I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of, there's part of me that's surprised and then there's part of me that's just not surprised at all. Um, that we've we've gone twenty minutes in uh, on verse one. Uh, there's a this, this is a dense chapter. There's a lot of good stuff, <laughs> but I, I really there's it really, something. Really is. Yeah, there's there's the few things though. I really want to get a couple uh, really other really choice phrases here. Um, one one in verse two and one in verse five. Um, I think I might just take that chunk together, and, and then we can start okay. chipping away at this. All right. So ver verse two. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will not. He will spare and rescue it. So, so now it's the turn. Um, it's, it's the Egyptians who are going to fail. It's God who is going to deliver. He is going to be the one who protects and rescues um, where the Egyptians are going to come up short. And, and, and historically, we're going to see that, that, you know, the Egyptians are just, you know, their, their little um, band that they've sent up north is, is not going to last very long at all. And, and there will be a, a clear path for the Assyrians to march on down to Jerusalem um, uh, and the only thing that's going to save Jerusalem, ironically, is the angel of death. Mm. Yes, indeed. Um, you know, uh, in, in to, to kind of extend from what you've said, it, God is, is addressing all of this by um, the, uh, the effect of his hand. I, I'm looking for the exact uh, verse where he um, uh, he stretches out his hand at verse three, hmm. and um, this this phraseology 
uh, can be taken very much in a law context where we're, we're talking judgment. And right. whether it's the angel of death or, or some kind of permitted judgment, um, and, and for that matter, can represent a, a certain day of the Lord. And there, there are multiple days of the Lord, but a day of the Lord that brings disaster. Um, and uh, God permits that. Uh, he Remember that, as we've talked about before, and we have to keep reminding ourselves, the law, the law is good and holy. Well, so is God's judgment is right. good and holy and think, well, how can that be good? Well, it's, it's, it's good because it not only um, affects repentance, mm-hmm. but, but it demonstrates who the only true God is over all other gods. As he fights for the Israelites, he, he demonstrates his superiority against, over and against the false gods. But, but in addition to that law aspect and the raising of God's hand, uh, the stretching out his hand is, is the right terminology at verse 3, there's also a gospel context where he blesses. And, and that blessing, um, remember the angel of death was sent, but, but the blessing he provides, he provides in himself uh, to cover his people. So there, there is a Passover that is always in play uh, in Christ. Uh, so thanks be to God that when he um, stretches his hand over us, it's that he stretches uh, the imputation of Jesus uh, in, in the midst of this. And there's all kinds of rich um, imagery here that, that demonstrates that uh, as, as like a bird hovering. So the Lord of mm-hmm. hosts will protect Jerusalem. And you can see Jesus gathering uh, his people and, and think of the imagery in the New Testament uh, as a hen, as a, as, a, as a mother hen gathers her baby chicks. Right, right. Well, and I think the key word there that you mentioned is Passover. And Passover, I think, really nicely captures this duality of how um, law and gospel are going to work together here and good and evil are ultimately going to work together here. But we got to hold that thought. We got to have a short break here. But hang with us, everybody. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 31 here on Nice Strong Word, and we'll be right back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa, and we're joined today by our guest, the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 31, this short little chapter that provides a spiritual perspective on the predicament of Judah in the midst of being caught between these superpowers of Egypt and Assyria. And we're just, we're just looking at verses 2 to 5, talking about how there, there is th- this duality of both good and evil. And it's very striking. 
in verse two, in fact, and this is, we hadn't mentioned this yet, but in, in verse two, it says, and yet he is wise and brings disaster. Literally in Hebrew, that word disaster is the word for evil. Um, I mean, like most, in most places in the Old Testament, when you see the word evil, it is this word, um, ra in Hebrew. Um, and it means evil. It, it can mean evil in kind of like the, the moral sense, um, but it kind of more often just kind of refers to like bad, a bad situation or even calamity, chaos, or you know, disaster as we have it here. And, and the, really the key we were just saying is that you see this as a kind of Passover here. And Isaiah showed that how the situation with the Assyrians early on uh, in the first 12 chapters of the book it is like a second exodus. And so similarly here, you, this, this is a really a description of a second Passover because in verse 5, um, and, this, and this is, Dad, this is just what you were mentioning here in verse 5, um, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. And you can kind of just picture God you know, going over Jerusalem, and it says he will protect and deliver it, he will spare and rescue it. And what's the Hebrew word for spare right there? And it is quite literally the Hebrew word for Pesach, um, Passover has it right there. And so th this is how you can get um, both of these things, good and evil, at the same time. It's because of, it's because of this, um, you know, Pesach, this, um, this Passover, that the angel of death is only dealing death and calamity in order to rescue the people of God. Yeah, amen. And and while he gives us revelation of the second Passover, which uh, you beautifully described, uh, there is, uh, at the beginning of 2, um, when he says, and yet he is wise, th th this um, this uh, can easily be seen as, as all Oswald brings out as a jibe at the royal counselors who were supposed to be wise, Right. Well, you know, they, they, they thought they were wise, you know, go and depend, go call on Egypt. Um, exactly. but, but the one who is truly wise will go the other direction. And instead of a uh, external uh, political uh, source of protection and security from Egypt that the quote unquote wise counselors was recommending, I'm going to be, I'm going to go, I'm going to be the true wise one. And I'm going to go counter to that. And, and seemingly, it's all bad. Seemingly, it's as you were describing, Ra, it, it's nothing but misfortune in this case. It's just, mm -hmm. it's going to turn out really, really badly. But because right. it turns out really, really badly, because in grace I worked this, this alien work, uh, you will see that um, I'm calling you back to repentance as I cover you, as I fight for you as I abolish false hope in you and lead you to true hope in me. So this, this absolution, the salvation uh, that is being described here at verse five is, is at the same time leading his people to repentance that we see uh, coming up in verse six. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In verse two in the Hebrew, that is meant to be read emphatically um, that, you know, comparing it from the previous line, you know, do not look, uh, referring to where is the line here? Those who uh, go down to Egypt, right? But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord, and yet He is wise. That's meant to be an emphatic He there, and um, and of course, 
you know, it's just as you were saying, it's like, okay, so what's God's plan? Well, he's going to bring disaster in the angel of death. And what's that going to sound like? It's going to sound like utter foolishness, right? And, and that's that's the contradiction. That's the paradox anyway, that, you know, the, the salvation of God looks terrible and looks like foolishness. And yet it's the wisdom of God and the salvation for us who are in Christ, right? I mean, this is the same duality that Paul captures. Amen. And uh, thanks for using the word duality so much. I'm a big fan of that word. But uh, <laughs> I, I want to just touch on the fact that um, you had said something I, I thought was really important at verse one. When I was trying to describe the the danger in, in trusting all these man-made means. And you qualified that very appropriately by saying, look, that means are, you know, there are a lot of means that are good. God works through means. Right. It's just when we get to the point of using those means in such a way is that we abandon trust in God. And, and so if the means become things like theft or, um, or adultery or something like that, we're, we're no longer trusting in God and his word. Um, so remain faithful. Let me bring it to 21st century application. Remain faithful in the priority of trusting in God. And even if the political machinery seems to be going, be going awry, don't despair. <laughs> right. God is still working to keep you covered and to keep you trusting in him. In fact, he might even use the political machinery going awry precisely to remind us that our hope is not in that. Well, right. And, and it's actually, that that's the thing. It's God actually works through disaster. You know, God actually works through, I mean, it's even funny that we use the word disaster, right? Which is, you know, etymologically, you know, disaster. It, it's, a, it's a bad alignment of the stars. You know, it's looking up at the stars and being like, oh, this isn't look good. not a good outlook, right? Um, he, I mean, he uses things turning upside down and um, you know, the moon failing to give its light and the sun going dark and, and, the st and the stars not being able to be seen. He uses these sorts of calamities in life to to destroy evil and save and preserve and refine good. And <clears throat> so it's not surprising then that, you know, and we're going to get to this um, in verse eight, that when he talks about this, you know, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of death here, that's going to come and, and execute this second Passover. That's literally going to pass over Jerusalem and is going to attack the Assyrians. It's easy for us to, to hear this oh, angel of death thing. And I don't know what, I, I guess me, I always picture some kind of like, you know, big, strong, like ominous looking figure with a hood, but maybe is also like bright and shining with with wings and maybe he's got some kind of gnarly flaming sword, right? Like he, you know, just went out there and just did battle. Like, and he's just taken on a whole army or something like that. Like this would be a good scene in a movie or something. Uh, and you know, I'm not ruling that out necessarily, but I, I think that what the scriptures are trying to tell us here is that the angel of the Lord, the angel of death was sent out in a spiritual way of speaking because he brought disaster on the Assyrian camp. And there was some kind of disaster that took place. And um, it, it's interesting to think about what that kind of disaster was. We saw, I forget which chapter it was early on. It was one of those maybe first like six chapters or so. And it was talking about some kind of burning or some kind of um, even like disease or pestilence that was going to go out among the Assyrians. It, it seems like this angel of death business is talking about uh, perhaps 
some kind of illness or disease that broke out uh, among the Assyrian camp. And, and we know just especially in those times and those conditions, something like that could rip through a camp and make short work of thousands of lives really quickly, even, even overnight. Um, it seems like that sort of disaster and calamity seems to be what's in view. What, what do you think? Well, I'm trying to envision, according to the the words um, later part of Isaiah, and and um, I, I think I can see some connections. Um, you know, so there there is a uh, to go back to three contextually. Uh, there is a perishing. There's a perishing, and uh, to go forward into uh, eight. Uh, there's a falling by the sword. Uh, there, there's a defeat um, in this perishing idea, um, and and I think that maybe where I'm making a connection the most is the the young men most associated with strength and and human power are put to forced labor, perhaps to uh, tend to the nation that is now desolate and doing everything to survive, um, as a slave would be bound to the most basic forms of labor, labor to live. So I, I, you know, I, um, you know, there's, there's terror involved at verse nine, there's panic involved at verse nine. So it's, it's an interesting idea. And it, it, um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's a legit possibility and how it panned out. Yeah. I was actually just looking over my notes here and I remember it now. Um, it was when we were looking at Isaiah chapter 10, um, and, and of course, mm. all these first 12 chapters, we're talking about the Assyrian crisis and particularly the siege of Jerusalem. And it's there in verse 16 that Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, referring to the warriors of Assyria. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Um, and then skipping down to verse 18, the glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. So, I mean, you, you do have this sort of well, language yeah. um, th that's used to describe um, what happened. And, and, you know, I mean, in some ways, you know, we just got to be humble and say, well, you know, it, it's not totally spelled out for us. You know, fair enough. It, it wasn't even totally spelled out for instance, with the original first Passover, right, when the angel of death sent out, you know, how did all the firstborn of Egypt die? Well, it, I mean, it just doesn't really say, you know, I mean, and it's, it's, uh, there, there's something, there's something, of course, it's from God, clearly, um, you know, the, with the, with the blood on the doorposts being the, the sign of the protection. And it's just, you know, some, there's something divine going on there, but what was the mechanism? It, it's not spelled out. Um, but, you know, something, uh, if I think there's maybe a little bit of time for it, something that I, I learned recently, which was pretty interesting, I thought, was that um, there's actually in extra biblical records, um, something um, dealing with this subject. Um, in a different battle, different occasion, the Assyrians and the Egyptians um, were to do battle the, the Assyrians sent down some forces down to Egypt because they didn't particularly like Egypt meddling in all of this, getting involved and trying to give their support to Judah. And so, you know, they, they send their guys down to Egypt and Egypt looks like, looks like they're going to lose, that they're, they're outnumbered. 
And actually, mm. it's um, the historian Herodotus who records this. Um, and, and his description is that it, it was the divine judgment of, of some god who did this. But it says that a, a plague of field mice overnight went out among the uh, among the Assyrians and chewed up all their their bows and their bowstrings and the handles on their shields. And so the result was when they tried to battle the next day, the Assyrians are virtually going into battle unarmed. And the Egyptians just have their way with them. And it, it seems like an impossible victory, but the Egyptians win and they win big. So there's there's um, this sort of thing that is recorded in the annals of history elsewhere that, you know, in, in a kind of miraculous set of circumstances, a battle is reversed by some kind of disaster or calamity. That's absolutely uh, fascinating. And, um, you know, I, I think as, as we look at Scripture as a whole, in terms of going back to the raw word, the, the word raw for misfortune, I mean, just think about all the different ways that's, that's made manifest and what, how misfortune comes upon. It could be a, through a natural catastrophe. It could, could be through battle. It could be through sickness. It, it could be through some uh, decaying image. At the end of the day, uh, all of these are a reminder that um, if you put your trust in anything but the Lord, it can only lead to misfortune, some kind of um, symbol of uh, inadequate uh, power. I was also fascinated by your bringing up the, uh, the idea of, of fire and um, the antithesis use of fire, of course, is at the very end of Isaiah 31. Where, where the right fire, the, the fire that is used in association with um, the holy sacrifices to God are, are back in Zion and in Jerusalem. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating di dichotomy and duality. Yeah, certainly. It, it's, um, right, you see, you see that where, you know, fire, I mean, and you see this um, with the original Exodus too, where, you know, the fire that gives light to the Israelites is uh, a bad thing. It's actually going to fight against the Egyptians. Good for Israel, but it's bad for their enemies. Or similarly, just um, the way it produces light um, in the Exodus, it ends up doing this thing where the, the cloud ends up creating darkness and casting darkness over the Egyptians so they don't even know where they're going. So, I mean, the, the very things that are good creations of God, light and darkness, day and night, uh, fire, um, it, it all depends on what side of God's good favor you're on. Um, the difference is nothing in ourselves. It's, it's only one of faith. Amen. And uh, to, to take that uh, a step further, um, when, when we get to the New Testament, um, think of the, the Holy Spirit as depicted by fire, and, and how does he, how do we remain connected to that holy fire? It, it, is, it is in holy baptism. And, and how foolish this looks to the world that, that has to rally itself in, um, you know, the, the external uh, symbols of power and to trust in something like baptism that unites us to the Lord seems 
uh, inadequate at, at best. Um, but, but these themes are always on both sides of the ledger. Uh, which one will we hold on to and which one will we turn right. from? Right. Yeah, it looks like foolishness to to hold on to the things of the faith and the sacraments, which don't look very impressive at all. But but we see again and again, like throughout Isaiah, even people who seem invincible, whether it's Assyria or Babylon or anybody else, even even the the armies of the world, which seem totally you know unconquerable, can be destroyed overnight um, by unforeseen calamity. Uh, I mean, I mean, really, it's just time and time again. It's like, okay, you think it's foolish to to trust in the word of the Lord? Well, it's foolish to trust in anything under the sun, because all of that can just disappear with the the snap of your fingers. So, I mean, it, it's um, it's really, it's really quite humbling, and it's really when you're when you really are kind of left down to it, it's not surprising then that God would choose simple, unimpressive things. Uh, to be the means by which he saves us, just to make clear to us that it's not the means themselves, but the God behind them. And no matter how much of the means we have, if we're far from God, they won't do us any good. How this must have filled the mind of Luther during the Reformation, because certainly there was a much um, uh, to the naked eye that was impressive uh, about the institution uh, that was very much uh, a church uh, depicted by human hierarchy and uh, and power. Um, instead, uh, Luther takes us to back to the Word of God, uh, which is foolishness in the eyes of man, but is the foundation uh, for the church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Uh, the Lord Jesus says, and and it's interesting that that word rock is is in this text in Isaiah, uh, the Assyrians' rock shall pass away in terror uh, at verse 9. So there there again, you've got a a false rock and a true rock. And uh, Luther was was part and parcel of that movement that the the Lord permitted to bring his church back to simply... Uh, trusting in the word and, and, and the holy saving gospel, which is a true rock. Right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I mean, really, we call it the Reformation, but it was it was repentance. I mean, Reformation is just another word, really, for that same phenomenon that God's people have had to go through time and time again. And as Hezekiah and Jerusalem and Judah had to repent for their for their idolatry, for their misplaced faith. I mean, so so also the Western Church had to repent, um, and you know, in, in this case, it was I mean, through Luther, who himself was repenting, repenting of his misplaced trust, um, through I mean, the way that he had in his own life trusted in his own works and um, had not trusted in the atoning work of Christ, not nearly enough. So, um, I mean, I mean, Luther is sort of a Hezekiah figure and repenting himself as he leads in repentance, um, as he clings ever more tightly to, to the word of God. Um, you mentioned the rock in verse nine. We should probably read verse nine while we still have some time. Um, let's, let's look at the last three verses here and then we still have a little bit of time for a couple more concluding thoughts. This is picking it up in verse six after that, that verbal form of the word Passover in verse five. Verse 6 now, 
Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So, I mean, yeah, you definitely, um, you know, have that rock idea, you know, I mean, we, and we see through the Psalms, there's the idea of connecting a rock to, you know, your, 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 your God, or perhaps in the case of the Assyrians, like your chief God. Um, there's also, of course, like the rock of Mount Zion here, contrasting with the deserted standard um, that's left in panic of the Assyrians. Uh, yeah, but I mean, in all of this, you know, it's just very interesting that the Assyrian falls by a sword, not of man. It's not It's not a human sword here. We're talking about some other kind of sword. And of course, you know, when I, when I think of, um, you know, swords that, that God wields, the, the one that we always hear about in scripture is the, the sword, which is his word, you know, in revelation, like the, the sword that comes from his mouth, right. You know, at his speaking, it is done. You know, that strong word of God cuts it's living and active. And, uh, at the word of God, disaster is wrought. Indeed. I, and, and I, I just love the fact that we just, we, we just, recognize the uh, inevitability if, if you're interpreting scriptures correctly of, of this continual duality. And um, on the one hand, uh, that sword hurts. It, it, it cuts deeply, but it has to, because as, as we stand back here and uh, have the uh, privilege to study scripture and reading about these nasty Assyrians, Right. It's easy to get up on our, our 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 high horse and go, man. These people were really terrible, you know. Right. But but that law, that sword of the spirit, cuts us to go. You know what? We are no different. Right. We, we are just like them. We 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 do the same thing in setting up our false idols. Um, but thanks be to God that that the other side of that sword of the spirit uh, just comes right out and de- declares us incredible uh, contextual reality of Isaiah 31 that that where the house of Judah was judged because they went along with this deception that they are being judged here right at the same time uh, verse 6 starts off turn to him from whom people have deep, deeply revolted all children of Israel mm-hmm. so his his mercy comes pouring out here in spite of all that you've done and all that you are according to your sinful heart I still call you back, and I still call you, and this is the amazing grace part, children. <laughs> hmm. And, and it, it just blows us away that uh, God in his mercy um, still loves us as he does every day in Christ. Amen. Certainly. We, 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 I, I always say this when we're looking at the Old Testament. You know, we have this, uh, it's like a it's like some kind of a bad habit or like, you know, disease or something. We always look at the people in the Old Testament like, oh, they were so dense and they were so dumb. And 
guys, we would have done the same thing because we're, we're the same kind of people. We all have the same sinful nature and we need to repent as much as Hezekiah and the Judeans needed to repent. We need to repent just as much as the reformer Martin Luther himself repented. You know, this Reformation Day, let's repent. Let's acknowledge this in humility that this is uh, a message for all of us. Idolatry is a common human vice. Um, it's not something unique to just certain people or pagans like we might like to distance ourselves from. But as, as you were just saying, I mean, it's it's this, this sword of the spirit that offers us um, not only wrath and punishment, but also grace and forgiveness. And it's the foolishness of the cross ultimately is, you know, what a disaster that was, what a, what a failed Messiah experiment that was. That turns out to be grace and rescue and salvation, uh, eternal life for us in Christ. Uh, that's all the time we have, nine verses, but meaty ones. Thank you so much. Um, always good having you on, Dad, um, and looking forward to yeah. having you on again soon. My pleasure. And may we, as verse 1 says, uh, look to the Holy One and remain in prayer call on his name and stay steadfast in the word. Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. That's our Reformation song. Amen. Amen. Everybody, that was the Reverend Dr. Alfonso O. Espinosa, pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Irvine, California. Also, if you mentioned his common use of the word duality, that's because he's the author of a somewhat recent book here, Faith That Sees Through the Culture, um, speaking of the dualities of Scripture, showing how the Scriptures do not contradict themselves. Check that out from CPH. We thank you for tuning in today, and we, we ask you to check out our underwriters, whom we also heartily thank, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check them out at lhfmissions.org. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Till next time, peace. You've been listening to Thy Strong Word. Produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.